0: Well, this is the second in a series—a sermon series that I'm giving you today on what it means to be a spirit empowered family on mission. If you look at our values out in the foyer, "spirit empowered" is one of our values. We say all the time that we're Christ-centered, spirit empowered family on mission. Normally, during these values series, I try to actually read the value that we've crafted. Um, if you look on our website, you can see all the scriptural references that we attach to to this value. Um, but over the years, we've tried to write down our aspirational vision of the church. Like, this is what we would love to be as, uh, as the people of God, as a family on a mission. We aren't all of these things yet, but it's where we're headed. And this is how uh, we word it, and it's why we're talking about being spirit-empowered today. It says, the Holy Spirit is not a distinctive reserve for certain Christian movements. Any missionary movement is necessarily a spirit-filled one. He activates in us the love of the Father. His power is given for the mission, and the mission is impossible without his power. Christ is exalted in the Spirit's fruits, gifts, manifestations, voice, and deep transformative work. We unapologetically seek his power and to join him in his work. So last week, I talked a little bit from the book of Matthew, from the gospel of Matthew, and Jesus' baptism about... Um, what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We looked at Jesus' baptism in water and then his subsequent baptism in the Spirit or baptism in fire. We said that uh, another uh, phrase for that found in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, found in the passage that we're going to read today, is being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being baptized or immersed, covered and doused in the Holy Spirit, Um, We're also talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the same concept to just describe different ways in the New Testament. And we said that Jesus goes first in all things pertaining to our salvation. So what he has experienced, we experience also because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, We get to experience the same things he experienced. So we follow Jesus in being baptized in water as he was baptized in water. Um, And then we follow him subsequently in experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Spirit of God. And we said last week that the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit is fundamentally an experience of direct encounter with the love of God that shapes our identities in God's love as we receive from him The acceptance, security, safety, significance that God wants to give us so that the words that the Father spoke over the Son on the day of his baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, are the same words that God speaks over us, those who are in Christ Jesus. So whatever the filling of the Spirit is and whatever it entails and whatever we experience in that moment, it is essentially an experience of divine love that we experience after conversion And then that we experience even repeatedly as we walk with Jesus. And we also said a word about being conscious to shepherd one another's souls in the family of God toward an encounter with the love of God. And this is important because what we're saying is we're not just shepherding each other to a church program. We're not just shepherding each other to my preaching. We're not just shepherding each other to something that the gospel tab offers. Uh, We're shepherding each other. All those things are only valuable if it's part of shepherding each other to a direct encounter with the love of God. That's where the action is, is in God's presence, as God encounters us with his own love. So we learn to artfully and patiently shepherd people's souls to directly experience the love of God. And we position them, maybe we position them in the things that the gospel tab offers. Uh, Maybe we encourage each other to show up in certain environments or do certain things. But ultimately, what we're looking for is for someone to hear for themselves and their hearts and their lives that God loves them. And it's this concept that I'd like to build off of today as we talk about what it means to be a spirit-filled family on mission. We want to connect today this concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit and being on mission with God in the world. And as we do that, there's just one other concept that I want to remind us of as we look at this passage. It's a theological concept that sometimes we refer to as God's manifest presence. As a matter of fact, manifest presence is also one of our values here at the Gospel tab and in the greenhouse Network. When we talk about manifest presence, it's very uh, this is what we mean. that God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. His presence fills the whole universe. God is omnipresent whether or not we are aware of him or acknowledge him. Even if we're not conscious of him, that doesn't change the fact that God is present and that he is present in a way that fills the whole universe. But when we talk about God's manifest presence, we're saying that he is manifestly present, that he is recognizably present in the spaces where he is celebrated, treasured, and experienced. At a base level, God's manifest presence has to do with God revealing himself to us in a way that we become consciously aware of him. I would say wherever we have become consciously aware that God is present in a place or in a person, in a church, that at that very basic level, we are experiencing the manifest presence of God. And I would say we wouldn't be conscious of his presence if God had not awakened us to that reality. Um, If God had not revealed himself to us, uh, we would not be aware. It would be possible for God to be omnipresent and for us to be wholly unaware of him our entire lives. But he is a self-revealing God. And in that revelation, he makes us aware that he's present and that he's speaking and he's doing something. So I'll argue today... Then in Acts 2, which we're about to read in a second, that when a ragtag group of early disciples experience the filling of the Holy Spirit together, that the, what they're experiencing is God being manifestly present in their midst. God was omnipresent before they were aware that he was doing anything, but he is manifestly present among them in a particular way, a way that gets recorded for us in the book of Acts. And that looking at this early experience of these disciples might give us clues To know what we might expect when God shows up in a particular place among a particular group of people. The kinds of ways that we might position ourselves, not just as individuals, but as a family. To experience his Holy Spirit together and what this means for us as we follow him on mission. So let me just give you some quick context for Acts chapter 2. By this point in the story of the New Testament, Jesus has risen from the dead. There are many eyewitnesses to this fact. Jesus has ascended back to the Father from which he will return someday, but before Jesus leaves, he gives his disciples particular instructions. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem. He's commissioned them for the mission to reach the neighborhoods and the nations all the way to the ends of the earth, but he tells them that they should gather in Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them as had been prophesied long ago by the Old Testament prophets. And so... Those early disciples, the scriptures tell us about 120 of them, men and women, gather in a room to pray. They pray for about 10 days together. It's likely a room that they've gathered in before, and they wait for the spirit to be poured onto them. These were Jesus's instructions to disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's that double baptism again, baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit, what Jesus experienced, he intends for us to experience. But you will receive power, this is verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria And to the ends of the earth. And this is an important connection in Jesus' instruction because he's connecting directly the experience of the family with the Holy Spirit with the mission in the world. Um, He's connecting these two things inseparably. This is why we say in our value statement that the Holy Spirit is not just a distinctive for certain Christian movements, as if there's some Holy Spirit churches and some churches that aren't Holy Spirit churches. The truth is, it works the same way for all of us. Um, This is God's plan for his people to be on mission in the world, is to fill us with his own presence by his Holy Spirit, and then to send us into the world. So the Spirit is not poured out just on us, he's poured out to us for the world. And in our network... Of ministries, this is really very true to our story. This is how we came into the experience of the Holy Spirit, how we became a spirit-embracing group of people. It's as we got on mission with Jesus in the world, we realized that we needed something. We realized that God had designed this in a certain way, and we needed a fuller, not just understanding, but experience of the Spirit of God in our lives. So after Jesus gives the promise, the disciples obediently go to the place and pray for 10 days. They gather, and they reach the day of Pentecost, which is a traditional Jewish religious feast that has to do with celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. People from all over the world are gathered in Jerusalem, as would have been the case every single year, to celebrate this religious festival. And that's where we're going to pick up and read in Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 13. You can follow on the screen. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And that's where we'll stop. So I just want to point out um, that in this experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's kind of four things. just want to point out that Uh, kind of are descriptors for us of what we might expect when the Spirit of God works in a family on mission, when the Spirit of God works among a group of people who have relationships with each other and pulls them into mission in the world. Um, The first thing I want to point out is that in Acts chapter 2, the filling of the Spirit happens in a very ordinary place. Notice that the disciples aren't gathered in a cathedral or something that looks like a religious concert venue. Um, It's not that these places are wrong, but there's something about the distributive act of God, giving himself away in a very ordinary place, a room where they had likely gathered in before. There's something about the simplicity of that that really makes it about Jesus' presence among his people. And says something about what God is doing in the time in which we live, the way that he's giving himself away in very ordinary places. I think part of the vision of Acts, and it's very notable the Spirit has not poured out as the disciples gather in the temple or in a synagogue. They're just in this ordinary room gathering together. I think part of the vision of Acts is that God is giving his stuff away in the cracks and crevices of society in living rooms and dinner tables in community centers and sports fields in schools and on sidewalks i even have a friend who planted a network of missional communities in a network of tattoo parlors that existed in a city it's a shame that sometimes we've made the church about people coming to us so that they can experience god coming to our spaces coming to our things Um, when God so clearly at Pentecost is ready and willing to give himself away in the most ordinary of spaces. This has everything to do with how we should experience the Holy Spirit to be poured out on mission, because I think part of our strategy is quite simple. It's handfuls of ordinary people gathering in ordinary places, getting ready to ask and receive what God wants to give. Um, They shouldn't have to come to a church service to see wind and fire. Um, wind and fire is willing to show up in all of these places, right? And you've heard me say before, you've heard me say before that if, if, you know, what we claim to believe about the risen, ascended Jesus Christ only makes sense in this room, then we don't believe in anything. This is just a show. Um, but if what we believe in makes sense out there in the pain and in the plotting of people's everyday lives then what we believe in has power to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead to save the sinner. And what we believe in is real, right? And God is giving his stuff away in these ordinary places. I think sometimes we complicate it. It's like God is ready, more ready to give than we are ready to receive. And he wants to give himself in the most ordinary of places. Second, the filling of the Spirit happens in this atmosphere of gathered community. I want you to notice in this passage the phenomena of wind that blows, a sound of wind that blows and fire that seems to separate and rest onto their heads. There's something about the way the Holy Spirit manifests on this day of Pentecost that lifts the experience of the Holy Spirit out of only the subjective, inner, private experience of the individual into the more objective, observable um, experience of a whole community of people. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not just filling individuals in this passage. He's showing up in the atmosphere of these gathered folks. They're stepping into the experience of the love of God. If the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is really about direct encounter with the love of God, they're stepping into the experience of the, of the love of God, not just as individuals, but as a family. They're experiencing this together. Now, I, I want to pause and say here That, of course, there will never, ever, ever be total objective consensus on God manifesting in a certain place uh, among a group of people. Notice that even in this passage, in Acts 2, there are people who are like, yeah, this is God. He's doing something. And there's other people who are watching the same thing happen and think, no, they're just drunk, right? Um, And this is a reminder to us. I said this last week about this shepherding piece. It's a reminder to us. To remember two shepherd people in these moments, that not everyone is experiencing the same thing, that there might be the majority of people in the room who are feeling like God is really showing up and do, doing something. There might be someone who walks out of that gathering and think, I didn't feel, see, here anything, right? And we have a responsibility to explain and to shepherd and to walk beside people. Peter is about to do this. He's about to stand up after this passage and explain to the onlookers what's happening because not all of them are sure what's happening. I think that's good practice. On the other side of that coin, it's a reminder to us not to be afraid of experiencing God together, even if not everybody gets it, right? To not be afraid of that too you would think that God would show up in such a demonstrable way in Acts 2 that nobody could deny it. But you know, that didn't even happen when Jesus was on earth performing miracles. Even when he was on earth performing miracles, people still said, oh, I didn't see it. You know, well, I didn't see what you saw. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why we don't see the same things, right? Um, but we shouldn't be afraid, nonetheless, of experiencing God as a community of faith and shepherding those who are experiencing something different than us. I think this is the hallmark of God's people. I would argue it's been always been the hallmark of God's people since he called them out of Egypt, God's presence among his people. That God manifests in the midst of his gathered children. I was recently talking to an experienced church planner who noted to me, he was grieving this, he was lamenting it, that many churches don't have what he called the spiritual capital to actually draw people. Um, So they have to lean into other things, programs and their physical space, the physical environment to draw people. At worst, these are just gimmicks to try to get people through our doors. Maybe at best, some of the things that we do together are to create a sense of transcendence Um, in our gatherings, to build a bridge to our experience of God. For instance, art and beauty have been used by the church. Music has been used by the church throughout history to tap into the human psychological capacity to feel transcendence. And that's not all bad. I'm for it, actually. The issue is that when it never goes beyond that psychological capacity to experience transcendence, to actually take us to the transcendent one, right? Right? When it just becomes about these things instead of about his presence. I think part of the vision of Acts is that people experience God together in their gatherings. And that means that people leave these gatherings with a sense of God was in that place. That's what they're talking about, that God showed up. In our movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance, I've been deeply moved by the stories of four mothers and four fathers who went before us, even here in Beaver County, who as soon as they sensed in their gatherings, I heard of a woman who was like this in Ambridge Alliance Church, our sister church on Merchant Street in Ambridge. Um, that their church is about as old as we are planted in the same season of revival that was happening in western Pennsylvania. I heard a story of a woman in that gathering who as soon as she sensed that God's presence was not manifesting in their gatherings anymore, she would go to fasting and prayer until his presence came back. I'm so glad that our foremothers and forefathers did not sacrifice the actual presence of God in our gatherings for something else that might be good but isn't God himself, Right? Um, What we need is God. People left this gathering uh, saying, you know, God showed up in that place. That was the testimony. We were praying together and God showed up. That was the testimony. I want that to be our testimony as well. And I hope that never in the name of efficiency, certainly never in the name of, I don't know, cultural relevance or anything else, we trade God's presence for something else that we think will get people through the door. Listen, listen, God will get people through the door, right? God will send us out into our neighborhoods. God will take care of himself, right? And we can trust that he just wants to be present among his people. Third, I love this, that the filling of the Spirit results in communication between tribes of people. Um, Part of what happens in Acts chapter 2 is a miracle of communication, the believers begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit enables them. So this means that they begin to utter syllables and sounds that don't make sense to their own conscious minds. But in this case, makes sense to those that have gathered, to those that are watching this as it spills out into the streets, particularly the very ethnically diverse crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pente- Pentecost. If you think about it, Language is both a great unifier and a great divider. It's a great unifier because when people speak the same language, it has the capacity to build whole cultures, whole civilizations. Language, maybe more than anything else, shapes how we see the world, the syllables that are assigned to objects and emotions and ideas, have the ability to create the space that unify, people together. But language can also be a great divider between people, right? A great barrier as well, because if we don't share the same language, it's hard to share the same experiences. We're limited in our capacity to understand how somebody else sees the world. A few weeks ago, Chelsea and I and the kids were worshiping at a sister church of ours in Glenshaw, a recent church plant that's an Arabic-speaking church plant. Um, And very kindly, they didn't have to do this. We were there just to participate in the worship service. But they decided that they would try to translate the sermon uh, into English because we were there. Everybody else in the room, you know, understood Arabic but they wanted to translate into English because we were there. The translator did an amazing job. I don't know if any of you were bilingual, but that's a very exhausting thing to try to translate a large segment of communication like that. And he he did a great job. But afterwards, he was sharing with us that translation into English was hard for him because there were some words that the pastor was using that expressed emotional concepts that are actually the combination of emotional words that we would use for separate emotions in English, um, but are kind of combined into a concept um, in Arabic, and there's really no equivalent way to even describe what the pastor's trying to say in English. Isn't that amazing? There's like whole new emotional territory that our Arabic friends have because language has assigned certain syllables to certain experiences and emotions that maybe we don't even have access to in English. That's some deep stuff, right? And it creates barriers between uh, groups of people. It can. Um, now, last week, we said that the filling of the Spirit is fundamentally an experience of the love of God, right? I already reminded us of that. Next week, We're going to be talking about particular manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our gatherings. We're going to talk about things like tongues and prophecy and miracles and faith and all of this stuff. And again, next week, I'll be making the case that those manifestations in our gatherings are only worth something if they are also about the love of God. All of these things have to be manifestations of the love of God, or else we're experiencing another spirit, right? Not the Holy Spirit. It needs to be about the manifestation of the love of God in our midst. So, it's no surprise to me that in Acts chapter 2, as the love of God manifests, it manifests in disciples not only individually, but now in their shared experience, and as it spills into the streets... It spills out in a way, out of their mouths, so that the barriers between speaker and listener are reduced. This is not, in this moment, just overcoming the barriers posed just by language, but by long, ingrained barriers of culture, worldview, ethnicity, the things... That, that language represents. The kingdom of God in Acts chapter 2 is showing itself to transcend all of that culture, to transcend all of those barriers, and to bring people together into one family. So today, If I were looking for a people, a family on mission, that was experiencing the Holy Spirit together, where the Spirit of God was manifesting in their gathered environments, I'd be looking for a people who have demonstrable power to overcome the barriers between tribes of people. Especially in an age marked by polarization, anger, and even violence between tribes, I'd be looking for a people that so manifests the Spirit of God, not just so that they speak in tongues in their gatherings, although praise God when that happens, but that the barriers begin to diminish between them in the atmosphere of divine love. That's what I would be looking for, for a place, a people, a movement where the barriers that exist between tribes begin to diminish because the love of God, the kingdom of God is overcoming them. There is something maybe too cynical in me, I'll confess, There's something maybe too cynical in me when a group of people claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit with all kinds of signs and wonders and they're speaking in tongues and doing all of this stuff, but they have no capacity to worship with, to be in a family with people who vote different than them, who look different than them. This is what the Spirit of God does. He overcomes these barriers. This is the great miracle of Pentecost. It wasn't just tongues. It's what those tongues accomplished in overcoming the barriers that existed between groups of people. I'd be looking for a kind of love that seems foolish to cable news networks, that seems foolish to politicians, that seems foolish to our culture, because it's so soaked, so baptized in the divine love of God that brings people together. And lastly, God manifests his love. He sends his Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit happens as the disciples go on mission together. Notice right from the beginning that the experience of being filled with the Spirit takes them from the upper room of prayer into the neighborhoods and the nations. This is literally a prayer gathering that spilled out into the streets in a moment. Caught up in that ecstasy with wind and fire and tongues that they did not understand coming out of their mouths, it goes into the streets. And I believe this is the pattern for what it means to be a Spirit-filled people. In our experience, in our network, at the Gospel tab, I'm testifying now, we've come into a fuller experience of the Holy Spirit as we have followed him on mission. If you want to experience more of the Spirit, and I hope you do, follow him on mission. Find out what Jesus is doing in the neighborhoods, in the nations. If you want to experience more manifestations of the Spirit, I encourage you get in touch with how Jesus is calling you to join him out there in the world, in the places where he's loving and lifting and speaking. Um, I love this. When the disciples gather for this prayer meeting, um, the context is that Jesus has already called them to an impossibly large mission. He's called them to heal the sick and cast out demons and to to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to confront all kinds of idolatries that are awaiting them in the cities that these early disciples will go, to confront all kinds of evil, to rescue all kinds of people. And then, after giving them this impossibly large mission, Jesus tells them to go and sit in a room and get in touch with their smallness. To get in touch with The desperation that inevitably was rising up in them as they looked at their smallness next to the largeness of that mission. It's this hunger-producing juxtaposition of the largeness of the mission next to our smallness that creates an atmosphere, a crucible, where God can pour out his spirit because we're so hungry for him to do what we can't do on our own. And this is why I admit I am suspicious of models of church that feign strength and greatness, has the possibility to undercut our hunger. I would say, if we want to cultivate hunger in people, let's give them a really big sense of their calling and help them get in touch with how small they actually are. And somehow in the distance of that, a spiritual hunger gets produced that God is often willing to meet with his own presence. So if we really want to be a people who experience the Holy Spirit, and I do, know this, we gotta be a people given over to the mission together as a family. If we really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I hope you do, then where would you go? I would suggest go to the ordinary places. I would suggest go to a place where hungry people are gathering and asking God to do what only he can do. I'd say be looking for the places on the edges of tribes where God is ready to reduce barriers between groups of people and call them into his family. And I'd say be ready to be called out into the places that he's called us to and get in touch with how small you are in light of that very great mission, right? Um, all of this, these next few weeks, is gonna lead to a very practical step. I mentioned the youth are gonna be helping lead worship. I Can't wait for that um, uh, next week on Sunday night. But we're gonna have an upper room prayer gra- gathering on Sunday night. We call them upper room prayer gatherings because we have Acts chapter two in mind. This is an ordinary gathering of ordinary disciples. If you've been, you know there's nothing fancy about it, but we just regularly anticipate the Holy Spirit to fill us there, and that this means something for mission. So it just so happens the last Sunday of this series is also an upper room prayer gathering night. And I just want to extend an invitation, there really is no pressure, but I just want to extend an invitation to you. And maybe that gathering, as we shepherd each other towards direct encounter, maybe that gathering is a place in our movement, our network, our church, that you could show up at soon, next week and come hungry, expecting God to meet us and to show up.